For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a University of Arizona professor tells what the Decameron, an example of Italian medieval literature, can teach us about surviving a pandemic with hope intact. Hear the story of a Tucson resident named Taylor, who following what he felt was a moral imperative, went to Syria to offer humanitarian aid in a war zone. And I ask Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, to put Taylor's story in perspective with the frequently shifting foreign policy of the United States. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The COVID-19 pandemic is requiring an unprecedented reaction among the global community. However, it is not the first, nor is it the most deadly contagion that humanity has confronted. The bubonic plague devastated most of Europe in the 14th century. Italian writer Giovanni Boccaccio described how this deadly disease hit Florence in 1348 in his collection of novellas called The Decameron. It's also sometimes referred to as The Human Comedy. His writing documented how hope was kept alive among those caught in the deadly path of the plague. Professor Fabian Alfie teaches Italian at the University of Arizona, including a course on Boccaccio's Decameron and why this medieval masterpiece is relevant today. He was interviewed by Elisa Ivanitskaya. What we can learn from Boccaccio's Decameron, there are many things we can learn. He's describing a situation that has parallels with today's crisis. I really do want to stress that there are only parallels. I mean, we're looking at a crisis, but that was just catastrophic what happened with the Black Plague of 1348. One lesson Professor Alfie says is central to the Decameron is that maintaining connections between people is crucial to surviving a crisis. It's a collection of a hundred stories where there are storytellers, they flee from Florence and they go to a villa and then they pass the time telling stories for a period of about two weeks. But what they're doing is really creating a type of social bond in the face of this social breakdown. At the start of the first day of the Decameron, and he divides his work up into 10 days, he gives a a very vivid depiction of the effects of the plague, the way the society completely collapsed. People couldn't be buried. People couldn't, couldn't get assistance. People couldn't get medical assistance. Family members were fearful to tend to their sick relatives, and often they would die alone. When he comes to the conclusion of his description of the bubonic plague, he he writes, and here I'm quoting, what more remains to be said, except that between March and July of the year in question, that's 1348, it is reliably thought that over 100,000 lives were extinguished within the walls of Florence. This would have been a city of between 150 or 200,000 people. So it's just this awful situation. And so what they're doing is by going up to this villa and telling stories, they're finding human connection, human bonds. And I'm sure people who are listening have seen the images on on TV or on online of the people in Italy who would meet on their terraces and all be singing with their neighbors. There's a, a modern day analog of people trying to make connection while they're holed up in their house as this coronavirus situation blows over. 
Alfie says another strength of Boccaccio's work is that it focuses on the simple pleasures in life, rather than lingering on existential questions. Again, to what can be learned from this work, he was living in the late Middle Ages, you know, 14th century. And instead of what we might expect from a medieval writer, that is, he doesn't talk about advice as to how to reach the afterlife. He doesn't give us philosophical explanations. Instead, most of his stories are very, very much about the the joy or the pleasures of life. A large percentage of the stories are body. That is to say, they're almost sexual in nature. The listeners would probably have at this frame of reference Chaucer, for instance. And that means that they're about the attachment to life. And you can see that it's in the face of this just gruesome situation. Instead of thinking about the afterlife, it's like, but I love this life. And you see that in this work. You see that in a lot of situations. I think most of us respond when we're faced with something to say, no, no, this is something I love. I love this community. I love these people. I love this experience. This is who we are as human beings. One reason that Cameron is so beloved, according to Professor Alfie, is because it is about attachment to fellow humans and the importance of compassion in interactions. Boccaccio talks, the very first line of the work is, I'll read it in English, then I'll just quote part of it in Italian. To take pity on people in distress is a human quality, which every man and woman should possess. In Italian, it's umana cosa e lavere compassione agli afflitti. And he talks about how in the face of these devastating crises, we need to be reminded of our common humanity, to have compassion for one another. Right now, for instance, there are stories of people not wanting to, to necessarily do the social isolation, that they feel like they're not at risk. Well, of course, we know that they're going to put other people at risk. This is a case where we need to be reminded of our common humanity, to have compassion. Speaking for myself, I'm a, I'm a man in my 50s. I'm reasonably healthy. Living in Tucson, it's, I'm not too worried that if I should contract it, it become very dangerous for me. But I do know that I could carry it to someone who has a medical condition, who are elderly, and they might not be able to fight it off. And so this, the reminder of, again, compassion, it's right there in that first sentence, is an important lesson. It's easy to forget in everyday life when things are running normally. We don't have to think about how am I affecting other people. Well, now in a situation of a crisis, you know, we need to be more thoughtful and go, well, sure, it's inconvenient for me, but my inconvenience is nothing compared to what might happen to someone who going through chemotherapy. And so that reminder of compassion is utterly essential. That was Fabian Alfie discussing The Decameron, written by Giovanni Boccaccio in 1353. Professor Alfie teaches Italian at the University of Arizona. That interview was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. The image of Americans fighting in Syria is typically one of U.S. troops outfitted in full combat gear. But some Americans involved directly in that conflict, like the subject in our next story, have played very different roles. In 2016, a man in his 20s named Taylor traveled to war-torn Syria, initially planning to help with the country's infrastructure. 
But he quickly found himself in life-and-death situations. AZPM contributor Sasha Hartzell spoke with Taylor about choosing to become part of a war on the other side of the world. Religious extremists from all over the world left their home countries to join the Islamic State. A smaller group did exactly the opposite. They traveled to Syria to fight against ISIS, joining with organizations like the YPG, the Kurdish People's Protection Unit. Taylor was one of these Western volunteers. In 2016, he left his home in Tucson, Arizona, and crossed into Syria, where he was to stay for the next two years, providing critical support in the battle against ISIS. I was, however you want to look at it, either very lucky or very unlucky to have seen two of the biggest battles of the 21st century. To begin with, can you just tell us how you got there? Back to 2009, when I was in the French Foreign Legion, my bunkmate, who became a really good friend, got a hold of me in 2015. And we'd talk every year or so, just see where uh, each other was at, and said, you know, what, what have you been up to? And I'm just out here in Tucson working. But, you know, I'm in Syria. So what are you doing in Syria? So I'm fighting the Islamic State. So he told me he was out fighting with the YBG, and he asked me if I wanted to come out there. My friend had told me, he said, you need to get used to what they call Sibe, which means tomorrow. That's something they say a lot over here. And that can mean literally tomorrow, or usually when they'll say it, you know, more than once or twice, like Sibe, Sibe, it might mean like a week, or it might mean a month, or it might mean never. For a while, Sibe was the mantra of Taylor's life. He spent months waiting in Tucson before he finally made it to Syria. Communication was very irregular with the YPG, and he had no idea of when, where, or even how he'd cross the border. But finally, he got the call. YPG got back in contact with me. He said, okay, and now we can actually take you. He was like, okay, you need to get here within three days. I'm like, okay, so I got the, like, the next flight to Iraq, flew out to Soleimania, which is a city in northern Iraq. Stayed out there in a safe house with about 10 other Western volunteers. They got pretty well acquainted with the Sibay, saying we were supposed to cross within two or three days. It ended up taking like three weeks. I came out with dysentery. I started to feel sick like the day before we actually crossed. I was like, look, are we actually going to go tomorrow? Cause I think I might have to you know, wait until next month if not because I'm starting to get really sick. We actually did cross the next day. So we had to drive out about 15 kilometers from the Syrian border. And our driver turns the lights on, puts the night vision goggles on, and he's driving off the road. We get down to a riverbed, and I had to take a rubber boat out of the back of the truck, pump it up, and they're telling us, you know, stay low and, like, try not to make too much noise when you're, you know, pumping this inflatable boat up, and you see lights, uh, you know, the Peshmerga patrols. We'd... So at any point, you know, we could have been, you know, taken out at gunpoint and arrested and put in Iraqi prison, which did happen to a to a few of our friends. So yeah, we had to cross the Tigris River at night on a little thingy boat, then hike through the hills into Syria. About halfway through, I started getting really, really sick, throwing up, and I'm carrying, you know, probably about 100 pounds a year. I'd packed pretty well and brought quite a lot of medicine, and, you know, I mean, dysentery, that was, <laughs> I mean, it was literally one point, like, okay, just one more step, one more step. And one point, I had to throw up, and I, went off kind of to the left of the of the group. Our, one of our guides was kind of whispering really. He said, no, no, Mina, Mina, Mina. I'm like, 
no, no, it's fine. And I figure later he's saying mine, like you're in a minefield. <laughs> like, there's a reason we were walking in a single file. <laughs> we had been navigating through a minefield. Nobody had informed us. It took you a lot of effort to get into Syria. Oh, yeah. And to start working as a medic there. So what motivated you throughout all of this to keep thinking that you were doing the right thing? I was seeing those news reports of the massacres in Shangol. They had disarmed the the population of Shangol. There were about 2,000 Iraqi Kurdish troops solely responsible for their defense. They literally threw their weapons down and ran, deserted these people in the face of like 150 ISIS fighters who besieged the town and just started raping and murdering literally enslaved these people. I mean, I I fought with some Yazidis in Raqqa who had been literal slaves two years before and had been liberated by the PKK. The Turkish militia had come down from the mountains into Shangal and fought their way up this mountain and created a corridor for the Yazidis to escape. Seeing that, that was really inspirational. So that was what really convinced me that I was with the right people and that we were doing the right thing. Can you talk a little bit about your work as a medic there? Yeah, so I had talked with some guys in the medical unit prior. I didn't think that I would even be qualified. I thought these were all going to be like, you know, former special forces medics and like doctors. And when I get over there, you know, I'm bringing out my medic kit and people are looking at it just like, I mean, most of the guys over there didn't even have tourniquets. I had, you know, chest decompression needles, chest drains and field surgery kit and actually knew how to use it. So the commander of the IBG's medical unit had asked me if I'd join their unit. And I said, oh, I mean, am I really, like, qualified? I mean, all, all I know how to do is, like, you know, plural catheters, treat tension hemothorax. And, like, the fact that you even know what tension hemothorax is, like, yeah, you're on the team, no, no problem. He said, you're practically a doctor over here. Within a year, I'd become a literal doctor, like, <laughs> become known as a doctor, I worked for the health department at one point. Our unit was directly under the PYD health department, which was the local government there in northern Syria. So I, I could walk into a, any hospital. They'd, just, they'd give me the key to their storage room and say, you know, just take whatever you need. And so many of the well-qualified doctors either fled or had been killed. I mean, that was the most dangerous job in Syria at the time, was to be a doctor. I was essentially responsible for the lives of, at one point, like 10,000 troops, which was was pretty intense. Taylor fought on the front lines of two major battles against ISIS, the Battle of Topkadam and for the city of Raqqa. In the Battle of Topkadam, Taylor ran the field hospital. The injured began pouring in within minutes of fighting. He described some of the first people that came to him, a civilian woman, carrying her daughter in her arms. Through the young girl's abdomen was a gaping hole made by an ISIS bomb. He remembers being able to see straight through it. It is images like this that punctuate Taylor's years of service. He estimates the number of lives he saved at roughly 500, but has no way of knowing for sure. Within weeks of his arrival, it became too chaotic to keep track. We also had a guy who would keep uh, records. He would take pictures and you know write down like five casualties came in. This was the injury and how many units of painkiller we gave them. And we'd write this all down, send it with them when they'd go back across to the hospital. 
after a couple weeks, it just got so chaotic that that guy, he ended up actually coming along with me on some operations and learned a lot and started doing actual, you know, frontline medic work, which when he had zero training, you know, to begin with. He was actually just killed last week. He went back with a different unit with the Yazidi Defense Forces in Shangal. Ended up fighting against the, the Turkish army and these Turkish-backed jihadists. He was killed by a Turkish airstrike. As a medic, a soldier, and especially as a friend, Taylor witnessed so much death. So how does somebody cope with something like that? It's a lot harder now just since these recent developments in Syria. Because for the longest time, for you know, almost two years, I actually coped with it pretty well because I am absolutely convinced of the righteousness of our cause. You know, having friends die, that's very hard. But when you know that they died for something very meaningful and something that's where there's no ambiguity. I have friends who fought in other wars, from you know, Vietnam to the Iraq War, where they're not totally convinced that that war was necessary, that it really, in the end, you know, achieved a positive outcome. And they have a really hard time, you know, not only thinking about the having killed and, you know, but losing friends and then thinking about, well, that it might have been for nothing. And uh, that's something that I never dealt with until pretty recently. And now, you know, that's pretty difficult. Ultimately, you know, we defeated the Islamic State, and it looks like they're going to stay defeated. I mean, they've shifted from a from an actual state you know, to a straight-up terrorist organization. So, I mean, we're going to see little bombings here and there and maybe some more shootings. I mean, we're just going to, to see what becomes of that, you know, region in the, in the coming years. But when I was over there, it was just... A, seemed like a beacon of hope for the whole Middle East. I mean, that you had this democracy based around, you know, women's rights. Where I lived, I mean, I had to learn, you know, greetings in four different languages just to walk across town. There were four different major ethnic groups that lived together in this tiny little village in peace that had, I think, an enormous potential for transforming the the whole Middle East. But, uh, you know, now we'll just, we'll have to see. Um... No, it's not looking good at all. Taylor has long had a strong sense of justice, and he grew up inspired by groups such as the Zapatistas in southern Mexico. It was the same sense of justice that caused Taylor to go to Syria to fight ISIS, and the same sense of justice that led him to share his story with me. I'm Sasha Hartzell, Arizona Spotlight. To put Taylor's story and the stories of other non-military personnel in Syria into perspective, I talked to Frank Fagluzzi, who was Assistant Director for Counterintelligence at the FBI during the Obama administration. Well, Taylor's story is not just a one-off. It's something that the U.S. government is seeing happen uh, with increasing frequency, particularly in the case of YPG. But throughout history, there have been to use a a phrase, mercenary-type fighters who decide for whatever reason, whether they identify with a particular cause, whether it's their own um, personality makeup or a combination of both people in search of a cause, people who have found their cause, we do see Americans go off, fight, render aid to causes that are 
sometimes in sync with the U.S. government administration's position and sometimes are not. Would a civilian engaging in this kind of activity expect scrutiny from an intelligence agency in regards to their activities? I think people like Taylor or people considering to go off on an adventure, sometimes a very gravely serious adventure like Taylor, need to consider a few things. One is um, they should expect scrutiny from the United States government as well as other governments because when you're in, going to a part of the world where there's conflict, where you're going, when you're going to a part of the world where there's terrorist groups, sometimes conflicting terror groups, rest assured that the U.S. government at a minimum is going to be aware of your activities and they need to figure out a simple question. What are you doing? Are you on our team, their team, or a third-party team, and why should we care? So increased scrutiny is, is one from the government, but there's another angle to this as well you need to consider whether you might be breaking U.S. law. And the answer to that question is, it depends on where you're going and who you're fighting alongside. If it's fighting with an entity that is contrary or represents a contrary position to the administration, you may find yourself in conflict with U.S. law. Now, in the case of Taylor and the YPG, I've checked with some current sources in government, there's no apparent violation of law in going to fight alongside YPG. But there's a third concern that I would also advise people about, and that's this. Murphy's Law, especially in a conflict zone, means that inevitably someone's going to get hurt, get in trouble, become a hostage, get kidnapped, and your family or yourself are going to expect the U.S. government to come to your rescue. I've had times in my career, um, actually more than I care to note, where we've had to come to the rescue of U.S. citizens kidnapped abroad. It gets very, very delicate when that scenario plays out in geopolitical circles. So now you find yourself a pawn, and you may find yourself at the end of the wrath of your own government saying, look, we're sorry this happened. You know, explaining to your family, we're so sorry that this happened, but your loved one has put himself or herself in jeopardy, and we're not a player in that part of the world, or we've chosen not to take sides in that part of the world. And he wasn't fighting with a United States military uniform and a flag on his, on his shoulder. He's fighting on his own, and I think people need to be aware of that. How does the government keep track of civilians in these war zones? Well, the answer is that they, by and large, do not. I think there might be some myth among some out there that the U.S. government has this all-knowing capacity to understand where all of its citizens are at any given time, and I can assure you that just doesn't happen. When you start getting into conflict zones, combat theaters, certainly the scrutiny's there, and certainly eventually you're going to trip over some wires, and, and elements of our government might might try to say, who is this person? What are they doing here? But I'm here to disavow from anyone the, the notion that the U.S. government's tracking citizens across the, across the globe. And so that's a good thing. We don't want to be tracked all over the globe. And it becomes a really bad thing when you put yourself in harm's way and you're calling for help. America's presence in Syria changed quite dramatically within recent months when President Trump made the decision to remove American troops from fighting alongside our Kurdish allies there. 
maybe Frank, you can contrast a little bit what the situation was like before that decision was made and what kind of a situation is it now? I would imagine for someone who would be attempting to follow in Taylor's footsteps, it would be far more dangerous today than it was when there was an American presence in that country. Yeah, this is a very high risk environment right now, and it's a higher risk than it was, say, several months ago. So on a couple of levels, this decision of the Trump administration has had impact. First, the obvious one is we enjoyed a tremendous alliance with the Kurds. These were brothers. These were brothers in battle, blood brothers. Men and women died alongside us fighting for the same cause. On a larger level, the withdrawal of the U.S. forces from the region sent another message writ large to our allies elsewhere, which was you may not be able to count on the U.S. as a solid partner when you need us the most. And I I know that my friends in the military, uh, my friends in the State Department, many of them were taken aback by the message being sent. But for many, this was more than just messaging. This was the loss of a friend in the Kurds. This was the loss of a common cause to fight for. And then on a far more on a far more practical level, since I see the, the world through a national security lens, um, and sometimes that means terrorism, I became very concerned, as many others did, about the, um, the license that this gave to ISIS, the lack of a check on ISIS that had really existed strongly, and some disturbing things, quite frankly, coming out of this administration. Comments like, well, some of the ISIS folks might flee and be released, but they'll go to Europe. Um, that's not our problem. So this move reflects yet an even larger question, which is, what is the America's role in the global war against terrorism? And you have to ask yourself whether we're even playing a role any longer. What was your reaction at the end of the story when Sasha asked Taylor, knowing what he knows now and experiencing the trauma that he experienced, that he would still make the same choice, that for ethical and moral reasons, he felt that he was doing good? From the story details, it sounds like, indeed, he's, he may have saved lives. Um, he may have made a very dire situation better for a lot of people. I have to tell you, though, and maybe I'm just a far more conservative rule follower, my question is, with all the things you can fight for in the world, with all of the issues at home that present themselves, is there a, a way to channel that kind of energy that kind of tenacity and desire to help on a major level, is there a way to channel that in, in a way that is, number one, safer? Um, number two, perhaps benefits folks back here closer to home? And is there a way to channel this kind of energy and desire in a way that may not get you caught up as a geopolitical pawn and may not leave you out there hanging if you're in trouble? I spoke with Frank Figluzzi, former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI and an MSNBC contributor. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.